Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Thank you for listening and for donating. Your support allows us to continue to celebrate and spotlight great writing and important ideas. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we'll hear my conversation with Booker Prize nominee Ruth Ozeki. Ruth is a novelist, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. She is the award-winning author of three previous novels, My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, and A Tale for the Time Being. Her nonfiction work includes a memoir, The Face, A Time Code, and a documentary film, Having the Bones. She divides her time between British Columbia and Western Massachusetts and is affiliated with the Everyday Zen Foundation and teaches creative writing at Smith College. Her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, is out in the world and the reviews are glowing. David Mitchell, for example, says, This compassionate novel of life, love, and loss glows in the dark. Its strange, beautiful pages turn themselves. If you've lost your way with fiction over the last year or two, let the book of form and emptiness light your way home. Here's my conversation with Ruth Ozeki. Ruth, thank you so much for being with us um, and for the gift of the Book of Form and Emptiness. Thank you, thank you so much, Sean, for saying this. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Uh, on a certain level, I was afraid uh, about this interview because in so many ways, I feel like your book uh, has entered my life, my world, in much the same way as uh, a book on tidying enters one of your characters' lives and seemed to follow me around the house and seemed to be asking me to examine my life and examine what I think of uh, reality and how I treat the people around me, how I treat the objects in my home. And I guess, you know, there's a huge question at the heart of this book, which is, what is real? And I'm not going to ask you to answer that because I think the book (laughs) kind of uh, points us towards an answer. Phew. But <laughs> but I do. Thanks. Thank goodness. I, I'm, the question I want to start with is maybe almost as hard, and that is, I'm wondering if you can, you, you beautifully talk at the beginning, the book addresses the reader, and all books begin somewhere. And I guess I want to start with, where did this book begin for you? Sure, yeah. You know, it's always hard to remember exactly where a book begins. Um, I do recall being in New York um, and going to this writer's room, you know, and I was kind of test driving the desks there. And, you know, I sat, I remember sitting down at one of them and thinking, you know, if, um, if I'm, if I intend to come here and write, um, I, I should really, you know, check this out and see whether, you know, I'll be able to do that. And, uh, and so I did, I sat down, I had my computer, I opened it up and I wrote this scene um, in which uh, Benny, who is the protagonist, um, has a dream about a strange and and beautiful young woman who reaches down, you know, from the ether and taps him lightly on the forehead between his eyebrows. And he wakes up and walks into the hallway and hears something 
you know, he hears a, a, a sort of quality of sound that he hasn't heard before. And as he's walking down, it's a very cluttered hallway because his mom, Annabelle, is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a collector. Um, he steps on a Christmas ornament uh, by mistake. And then he hears the, the lamentation of the orbs, the, the, you know, the Christmas ornament crying out to him. And, you know, and that's really the beginning of, uh, you know, of this, this experience that he has, which is, of course, an unshared experience um, of hearing the voices of things talk to him. And, and that really, I think, was the first, um, you know, the, that was the first scene that I wrote. Um, but the story behind it, of course, you know, I mean, I'd been thinking about uh, hearing voices and, and uh, things like that, you know, beforehand as well. Well, well, can I ask, why were you thinking about hearing voices? What is it about that? that yeah, that sure, sure, of course. I mean, uh, a couple things come to mind. You know, one is um, that, uh, you know, after my dad died, uh, for about a year after that, I used to have this experience of, you know, hearing him uh, say my name. Right. And, and I'd always be doing something like washing the dishes or folding laundry or, you know, chopping onions or something, you know, pretty random. And I'd hear sort of behind me to the to the right slightly, I'd hear him uh, clear his throat and say my name. And this happened very quickly. And every time, I, you know, I'd kind of turn around. Um, and of course, you know, he, he wouldn't be there. And I'd, you know, sort of experience this this you know, hollow feeling again of, of loss and grief. And, you know, as I, as I remembered, you know, that he was, that he was dead. And, you know, at the same time, I didn't really believe it had happened. You know, every time this, every time this little thing happened, it was like a little blip, you know, and you almost, I just couldn't believe that it really happened. And I, I think I just, you know, would sort of shake my head and, and, and shrug and go on doing what I was doing. So I didn't really take it seriously. And then, um, you know, I was at a I was at a book uh, event, a reading at a public library, and um, I I very often talk about how characters come to me as voices, and I was talking about Nao Yasutani, who is the um, protagonist of um, A Tale for the Time Being, and I was talking about her voice, and I was saying, you know, well, yes, characters come to me as voices. And uh, a man in the audience raised his hand and he asked me very specifically, he said, when you talk about characters, you know, hearing characters' voices, are you hearing them with your ear as if they are on the outside of you? Or is it more like you're hearing them inside, you know, with your mind? And this was interesting to me. So I, I explained that, you know, for characters, it was certainly more as if I was hearing them inside and hearing them with my mind, but that I knew what he was talking about. I, you know, I, because I'd had this experience hearing my dad's voice, which was very much outside me. You know, it, it was very much linked to a, you know, a certain spot even. And then I, you know, so that really started me thinking about the different ways we think about um, hearing voices. And of course, too, you know, being a writer, I have a, 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 
rather large cast of, of very unhelpful characters inside me, you know, who are always talking to me and always telling me that, you know, what I'm writing is, is, you know, is terrible. And, you know, I should, I should just give it up. This book is never going to work. You know, why don't you go out and get a, you know, get a real job? You know, I have, I have all of these voices of the inner critic, the inner judge, you know, any, anybody who's an artist does, right? So I started thinking about this you know, the spectrum of uh, the voice hearing experience, um, you know, and on one side, we, we you know, look at, uh, you know, some of these voices as being, you know, kind of inspirational, right? They're, they're in artistic inspiration. Um, and then there are the neurotic voices of the, you know, the chorus, neurotic chorus of the inner critic. Um, and then there are these other voices that, um, you know, you hear differently, Um and these voices can indeed be very disturbing, um, you know, because they are unshared experiences and, um, and nobody else is hearing them, right? And this is, in fact, what the, the man at the library, um, you know, his son heard voices and, in fact, found them very, uh, very disturbing. So, you know, this, this spectrum, on one hand, it's creative inspiration. On, on the other hand, it's, you know, psychosis or schizophrenia. And, you know, and so how do we, how do we think about that? You know, how do we, how do we, um, you know, is there a way to sort of expand our concept of normal, um, you know, to include both ends of the spectrum? It's interesting to me hearing you just say a, a share, an unshared experience. And I, I, you know, this, this leads, of course, this is Benny's, um, this is what Benny is dealing with as we meet Benny at the beginning of the book and throughout the, the book is, is objects speak to him. Um, the impact on his life is certainly not positive in many, many ways. Um, the voices are disturbing. But it's interesting to me that you're being very careful not to use a word like delusional or, and certainly in the story, schizoaffective and, and other terminology is used to describe Benny. But I don't think Benny ever really describes his experience that way. And I'm just wondering... You know, so you, you've been spending time thinking about that difference between what we think of as creativity and what we think of as mental illness. Mm -hmm. and, yes, and right. in some ways, you're, you're maybe saying it's a permeable. It's it's not a a permeable barrier. It's not a it's not a hard wall. And I'm wondering, is this something that you've had to grapple with as a creative person? And when you you try, you know, you describe these voices in your head that are some of them helpful, some of them not helpful. Some of them are characters. Some of them are your own voices. So maybe talk a little bit just about navigating that inner mm. world. Sure, sure. Well, um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it is interesting to me, you know, because, uh, you know, after, um, when I really started thinking about this, I started doing some research. And um, it turns out that people who hear, for example, the voice of a, you know, of a uh, departed, you know, um, loved one, this, this experience, an unshared experience, is, um, is actually not uncommon. Um, you know, that people report this, uh, you know, with some frequency. Um, I also started doing, you know, I, I started doing, um, you know, research into other, you know, other people who have heard voices. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people hear voices um, and are never diagnosed, you know, so the, the you know, with, with a mental illness. So, you know, you talk about schizoaffective disorder, for example, or schizophrenia, you know, if you tell a psychiatrist that you hear voices, um, you know, 
chances are that um, you know that you will be diagnosed with um, some kind of you know uh, mental illness like that, and um, you know and and yet there are people, many people who you know have heard voices um, and have never been bothered by them, and in fact have never reported them. Um, and and you know people like you know people who come to mind are people like Mahatma Gandhi, you know, um, or you know. Ironically, you know, Sigmund Freud and Carl, Carl Jung, you know, the fathers of, of psychiatry, right, um, reported hearing voices. Um, you know, Joan of Arc, you know, was a, was a voice hearer. Um, you know, and, and the list goes on and on. Um, so, you know, it, it, again, you know, it, it's an interesting, um, you know, it's an interesting conundrum. You know, do you, you know, are, are um, you know, psychopharmaceutical, you know, apparatus that is at play in, in our world today, um, tends to categorize mental illnesses as if they were physical illnesses, right? Um, and that's the paradigm that's used, but that's not necessarily the most accurate or the most useful paradigm. Um, and so, you know, again, there are a lot of people who are critiquing, um, this this paradigm, and I'm thinking um, in particular right now of of um, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, the author of a really wonderful book um, called The Body Keeps the Score, and he has some rather harsh things to say about he's a he's a psychiatrist himself, and he has some rather harsh things to say about this you know the psychiatric diagnosis diagnostic system. Um, so in any case, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I, you know, I, I, um, I'm not a professional, um, but, you know, I have uh, spoken to a lot of people who do hear voices and, um, you know, and there's a wonderful, um, you know, there, there are wonderful sort of grassroots organizations that are growing up um, to support people who hear voices. Um, and here I'm thinking about um, a, a really great um, organization called Intervoice, um, the International Hearing Voices Network, and another one uh, down here stateside is Hearing Voices USA. Um, you know, there, there's some really pioneering work going on here um, about other ways of, um, you know, of uh, sort of working with these unshared experiences. Right. Now, so there's the unshared experience, which for Benny... Um for, for uh, the bottle man, for the Aleph, for, for a number of the characters, they seem to be, this is what is real, what is not real in terms of their perception, in terms of what is, what is art, what is mental illness, is being played out there. And then you've got Annabelle, who's Benny's mother, who's, um, when, we, when we meet her, is, is in the aftermath of the shocking death of her husband. And... With her, you're exploring, uh, in, in, in part at least, a relationship to objects that is very clearly unhealthy, uh, an attachment to physical objects. And I'm wondering, can you just talk a little bit about, about her character, where, where she came from, and, and really what it was that, that made her real for you? What, mm, what, what, mm, mm. Mm. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't actually call Annabelle's attachment to objects unhealthy. I, I would actually call, that, call it pretty normal. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, the objects that Annabelle uh, is attached to are things like, you know, it starts out with things like um, her, you know, her husband's, her dead husband's clothing, 
right? She just can't bear to throw to throw it out. You know, his flannel shirts still have a little bit of him in it, right? In them, in the you know, in the 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 weave of the shirts, and and so she just can't bear to throw these things out. And I think any of us who've um, you know experienced the loss of of a loved one has had that experience of of you know being you know very attached to the objects that belonged or were associated with the person that you've lost and um, and really being unable to part with them the other thing about Annabelle that I think is interesting and I think that I relate to so anyway I mean I've had to do this with my parents you know I, I had to clean out their house and it was it was hell you know to be perfectly honest it was you know every single object in that house it was like it had some story and the story you know held held my mother held my father in it right and so to get rid of it was like killing them you know every time i had to throw out you know a, a canceled check with my father's handwriting on it it hurt it was a physical pain you know um and and there were a lot of them because my father was very meticulous about saving all of his canceled checks right going back for decades right and um so this was an experience that i was you know that was uh, fairly you know, fresh in my mind. Um, and the other thing about Annabelle, though, is that, you know, she is a person who really senses the, you know, the vitality in objects. Um, she, she loves craft supplies, okay? She loves going to Michael's and just walking up and down the aisles because, you know, in every, you know, in every, you know, set of watercolors or oil paints or every, you know, um, pen set or, you know, bunch of raffia or something, you know, what she senses is the potential of that object to become something beautiful, right? I mean, she's a very kind of creative and generous person. And, and so she just, um, you know, and, and this is something that I, I really relate to because, you know, take me to a stationery store, you know, and put me in front of a case of fountain pens. I mean, I, you know, you can't pull me away because every single one of those pens, it feels to me like every single one of those pens contains within it the seeds for a novel that I'm not going to be able to write if I don't own that pen, right? And, and I know, I understand this is nuts. You know, this is, this is not rational, but that's how it feels, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I'm not the only one. Um. No, no. And so, and it's interesting, I slipped right into using language that was very diagnostic, you know, unhealthy as if, you know, what, what would that, what would it mean? And yet, certainly you talk about the, the supplies she's buying, you know, and her, how attuned she is to the notion of, of, of the possibility inherent in everything. And yet, many of these craft supplies are never out, taken out of their bag, and they begin to take over her space. And so, you know, what is that relationship that you're talking about? That you're saying that, you know, certainly is part of your life. I recognize that in myself, as especially as a, a lover of books. I'm looking around the room I'm in now, and I am surrounded. <laughs> and if we, right, and we think of these as, as you ask us to, and as, as any reader does, as, as books, as objects that essentially have whatever we would think of as a soul, what are you, I guess... Can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to explore there with our relationship with objects and, and how even seeing the best in something can sometimes not be helpful for us? Sure, sure. I mean, we all, you know, I mean, not we all, I, I'll, I'll just own this myself, you know, have a tendency to be a little bit overly aspirational, you know? <laughs> And so, you know, so, so when I, you know, I, I have that same relationship to books, you know, 
Um, I, you know, in my library, on my bookshelves, I have so many books that I've never read and, and might not read. You know, they're aspirational. Um, I have, you know, I have stationery that I'll probably never use. And I certainly do have fountain pens that I rarely use. Again, it's aspirational, you know, and, and too much of that is a problem. Too much of anything is a problem. It's a question of balance, right? Um, and Annabelle, who is who is traumatized and and is you know using I think um, you know objects in the material world, um, you know she's you know sort of surrounding herself with things um, in in some ways as a kind of protection, right? And and you know this is you know I understand this. I I have a you know I have a um, you know a, a deep sympathy for Annabelle because of her, you know, because of those aspirational qualities and because of her, you know, sort of unfailing optimism, you know, that at some point, you know, she will be able to, um, you know, use the raffia that she's collected, you know, to, to you know, to make something beautiful. Um, you know, and, and in, in her case, you know, I think that the trauma was, was uh, severe um, and she needed help you know, to, to let go of things. And, um, and so I think that's her, you know, that's kind of her trajectory. Um, and often, you know, often we do need help. We need help to, you know, to sort of come to grips with our overly aspirational, you know, <laughs> sides, parts of our nature. Mm-hmm. And then, so the other, another element that is explored, I think quite directly in, in the story is the, what, we think of in our culture and in our language as a, a dichotomy between the made and the unmade, the natural world and objects that have been transformed somehow by us. And do you see those as fundamentally different in terms of our relationship? Clearly my relationship with a tree versus with a book. I mean, is there a, is there a qualitative difference, do you think, between our interactions, between the made world and the unmade world? Or... You know, that's, that's, you know, that was the question that, you know, that I was kind of circling around in the book. Um, you know, is, is there a difference there? And if so, what might it be? Um, you know, the, the book, who is in fact narrating, you know, the book is narrating the book, right? The book of form and emptiness is the narrator of the book of form and emptiness. And, and being, you know, being a book, it has certain opinions about, you know, about books, for example, but also about, um, you know, the difference between made objects and unmade objects, um, you know, and uh, being a book, um, it very much feels that it is, uh, you know, a little bit superior to perhaps other kinds of made objects, you know, um, you know, a, a running shoe, for example. I mean, the book thinks that, you know, books, um, you know, have, have uh, what, more intellectual capacity than, say, you know, a lowly running shoe. Um, you know, you could, you could differ, you know, that, that's fair. Um, but, you know, books being kind of positioned closer to and able to speak the language of, um, you know, of humans, of, of their makers, um, it, it's almost like the book is, is claiming a kind of divine relationship, you know, a, a direct relationship to the creator, right? Um, and, and so, you know, I was just obviously just playing here <laughs> because, you know, do I believe any of this? No, I believe that, you know, I, I believe that, um, you know, but, but for me, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's fun to, it's fun to think, you know, 
what might a book think? You know, if a book, if a book could really express its own opinions about these things, you know, what, what might it say? You know, and, and that's, the, that's the fun part of fiction to me is that you can, you know, you can play with, um, play with concepts like that, play, you know, play with questions like that, play with concepts like that, and never really have to answer them. You know, it's just right. an open-ended and, question. Well, and, and the book uh, that is narrating your book has some interesting opinions about an author, the role of an author. <laughs> yeah, and right. so I, I want to ask you, I mean, how, what is your relationship? We, we hear, you know, uh, it, I guess there's a way of thinking of an author as, as the creator, as the person, as a mother to a book, or maybe it's here suggested more of a midwife. Or, and, and I'm just wondering, what is your relationship with the books you have written? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, in a realistic world, you know, I, it is me who's writing the books. You know, I do cop to the fact that I, you know, sit in front of my computer for, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours and days and months and years, you know, writing, writing these books. Um, the, you know, the, the feeling of it is slightly different, though. You know, if, if you're just kind of watching, watching my body and what my body is doing, yes, you know, you'll see somebody sitting in front of the same desk, you know, um, for a very, very long time, you know, staring at a screen and, and doing this thing. Um, the, the feeling of it is different. You know, um, very often I will have a sense of um, almost falling into the story to the point where, you know, I, I'll finish it, you know, I'll finish writing one day and, and then the next day, come back to my computer and open up a document and look at it and, and have, you know, it's familiar to me, but it, it's also feels like, you know, unfamiliar too. Like, like, did I really write that? And wow, I just don't remember writing that. Um, in the same way, I think that when you, uh, when you dream, you know, sometimes you remember your dreams and sometimes you don't, you know, you know, you've had a dream. There's a kind of vague sense of familiarity about it, but you know, you, you don't remember it in that kind of crystal clear way that you might remember something else, like a conversation that you had with a person or, you know, a meal you ate. Um, you know, those are, those are experiences that are, you know, that, that stick in the memory, um, more clearly. Right. But the, this kind of semi dream state is, is different. And, and that's often what fiction writing feels like to me. Um, again, you know, and this is interesting too, because, you know, it's an unshared experience, at least during the making of it. Right. Um, and, you know, so in that sense, you know, I, I mean, you know, I can imagine a world where, um, writing fiction would be a diagnosable mental illness. I could imagine a world where, um, you know, people thought that making things up that aren't real um, is problematic and that, you know, for example, reading things that aren't real um, is problematic. And so therefore we should, you know, outlaw um, novels because they're not real. Um, and we should, uh, you know, we should um, throw novelists, um, you know, in, in jail or in, you know, in psychiatric wards. Um, because they're, you know, they're making stuff up that's not real. Um, and, and I'm glad we don't live in that world. You know, I can imagine it. You know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, And yet me. in some ways, in some ways, I mean, you're, you're describing this as a, an unshared experience, what you're doing at, at, at your computer. And yet 
it is now a shared experience or a kind of shared experience, right? Because uh, I own this book too. It lives inside me just as much as you. And in a, in a, on a certain level, as a reader, it's mine now. You can't have it back. That's right? exactly right. That's exactly right. Because I don't know what book it is that you have. You know, we're both calling it the book of form and emptiness. But clearly, you know, the book of form and emptiness that you have now in your possession, because you read it, um, is, is a book that is unknowable to me. I, I cannot know that book because you co-created it, right? Um, you know, it's it's a collaboration now between you and me. Um, and, and so the book that you, the book of form and emptiness that you read um, might be, you know, significantly different than the book of form and emptiness that I think that I wrote, right? And that would go to, you know, the same would hold true for, for every reader who picks up this book. And hopefully there will be many of them. You know, it, it, the, the book itself proliferates, you know, it's it's like a quantum multiverse, right? Uh, the, the, there will be as many books of form and emptiness as readers who read them. Well, and so this maybe is a nice, um, can you tell us a little bit about the Aleph, the character? Because I think this is sort of what, in, in a way, what the book is as we're, as we're sharing it, right? It's a place. Yes, exactly. The, the, the Aleph is actually, um, it, well, the Aleph is many things, but um, the, there's a character, um, in fact, uh, it's the character of the young woman who appears to Benny in his dream. Um, and then later he meets on the psych ward. Um, and, you know, she leaves little scraps of paper um, that he follows. And uh, eventually he, you know, he ends up at the public library um, where he meets her again. So, and then, you know, from there they have you know, they have, I mean, he falls in love with her, of course, and um, they have adventures together. So, you know, um, in, in, one, in one sense, she's, you know, she's just a character in, in the book. Um, the, the name, uh, Aleph, is from a, a Borges novel, uh, not novel, sorry, short story. And um, in that short story, the Aleph is a phenomenon, not a, not a, um, a person. And it's um, the point in space that contains all other points. And Borges describes it as this, you know, this small, you know, it just unbearably bright uh, spinning um, phenomenon that sort of hangs in the air. And if you stare into it, you can, you know, you can basically see everything in the known and unknown universe, um, you know, sort of milling about and, um, you know, emerging, right? So it's a place of infinite possibility. Um, it's a place of, of, you know, infinite space. Um, and, and this is a very Borgesian, you know, a very Borgesian quality. But, you know, in, in the Book of Form and Emptiness, um, there's another location that's like that um, in the library, in the basement. Um, there's, a, there's an old bindery that is, being, um, that is being dismantled, much to the chagrin of, um, you know, the library patrons who, who want to keep it. Um, and it's, uh, so it too is a place of unbound phenomenon. Um, and that's in fact where Benny goes and he first hears the words of his book speaking to him. Speaking directly, yeah. So, th you, the way you describe the LF or end and that whole sequence in the bindery with the unbound and the notion of of words that are freed from the page or or liberated from the page, I'm wondering 
that concept conceptually, do you approach it differently as a writer than you do as a Zen priest? Or is there no duality between those two selves? Is it different for you as a writer? I mean, I'm just wondering, is it a, the same process when you're excavating that space for a book and trying to maybe clear it out for, for meditation? Or, or is it the same thing? It, it's kind of the same thing. Um, you know, it's just a question of what you do with the experience. You know, when I'm, when I'm meditating, I'm generally not holding one of my many fountain pens, you know. Um, although I have been known to do that, uh, you know, uh, don't tell anybody, but that, that you know, is, is something I've been known to do. Um, but no, these days, I think when I, you know, when I sit meditation, I, you know, I sit. And when I, when I write, I write. And, um, you know, so they're, they're both their own discrete um, activity. Discipline. Yeah. Okay. Is but there overlap in terms of the skills required? I think there's overlap in terms of the, I don't know whether you'd call them skills, but um, yeah, in terms of the, um, the state of mind that, uh, you know, that, sort of arises and that um, in, in those in those activities um, and it's a very um, you know it's a very kind of you know relaxed mental state you know where um, and, and the way that I uh, sort of one way to kind of express it or to think about it um, you know if you imagine your mind as being like a hand right um, and uh, so in, in meditation you know um, what I'm trying to do is is relax the hand of my mind, right? So I'm not grabbing on to thoughts. I'm not grabbing on to you know um, feelings as um, you know as they arise. Um, I'm just allowing you know allowing them to be, and then you know they they move away, right? Um, and then the next one arises, and and you know instead of grabbing it, you know sort of relax the hand, and you know it passes, right? Um, and and I think that in writing, um, the you know, I, and again, this is just a kind of very subjective description of what it feels like, um, but it it often feels to me like. You know, I have, I do have to kind of relax the hand of my mind in order to allow a scene to emerge. And if I grab onto it too tightly, in other words, if I clench too hard, um, I it almost disappears, right? Um, it, it it's almost like the only way for that scene to to realize itself is if I can relax around it and let it emerge on its own, um, rather than trying to uh, trying to control it you know, too much. Um, I mean, that's pretty abstract, but uh, it, it feels it feels similar somehow. Right. And so um, I'm really curious about, you've got a character, a, a nun um, or an abbess uh, in the book who, who is kind of a, a Marie Kondo character in the sense that she's written a, a self-help book. And then you know, and what I do love that that even the Twitter verse, uh, the rage that exploded around the idea that books should only bring joy, <laughs> made it in there. I remember the, that conversation. I, know. I do too. I do too. And, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm just wondering how, in terms of in terms of your practice as a writer, are, are the things that about cleanliness and tidiness and 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 order. Is that part? Is that as important to you as a writer as it is to you as a spiritual being, or do you see no? Like I'm, I guess I'm just trying to thread the needle there in terms of um, our relationship with our inner space and our outer space, and you know what tidiness 
Okay. Mm, I'm not. I'm not a tidy person. I mean, you look at this novel. You can see that, right? The novel is mm. like a. I, I I think of novels as you know, sort of compost heaps. Um, you know, uh, they're they're a big kind of, you know, kind of a big mess. Um, and and that's what's so beautiful about them. You know, is that they you know they have that um, that capacity. You know, um, to to do things on their own versus a screenplay, which is like more like an architectural blueprint. Um, and I've written both. So, you know, I, I, I kind of know the difference there. Um, but the, no, the novel is a kind of an organic, you know, growing thing. Um, and, and two, you know, I, I'm not a tidy person at all. I mean, you, you would know that if you saw my house, um, you know, uh, yeah, I would like to be, you know, again, I'm aspirational, but you know, it's, it's not my normal, my normal state. And certainly when I'm, when I'm writing, um, I, I like to allow a certain amount of mess to exist. And if it doesn't, then I invite it in. Um, you know, uh, to me, you know, the, the, my frustration is with the limits of my own mind. All right. Um, my frustration is when, you know, and I have a, I have a pretty rational, you know, realistic mind, you know, very, you know, quite logical. Um, and, and I get very frustrated with that because, um, you know, it, it's, it, it tends to be very controlling in those ways. And, you know, so I'm always looking for, you know, for ways or techniques to defeat that quality in my mind to, you know, to nudge my thinking out of those kinds of ruts. And so very often I will play, you know, I'll, I'll kind of set up challenges or play games, right, um, in order to do that. And so, for example, in this book, one of the games that I played was, um, you know, I knew that there were going to be objects in this book and I knew that the objects were going to have voices. Um, and so what I did was uh, made a rule that when somebody uh, gave me an object, Right, I would put it in the book and see what happened. Okay, so my um, a friend of mine, you know, my my former editor actually came back from a trip to I think it was the Bahamas, and she brought back um, a little, you know, kind of a kitschy little snow globe, right, um, with a sea turtle in it, and um, there was a sea, little sea turtle inside, and then there was a larger sea turtle on the outside. And, um, you know, you just like a snow globe, you tipped it upside down and all these sparkly things kind of floated through the, you know, through the air. And, and I thought, oh, this is, this is perfect. Great. Uh, you know, I will give this to Annabelle, you know, who is a collector and, and see what happens. Well, immediately she starts collecting snow globes on eBay, right? She, she starts an eBay collection, right? Um, and, and she thinks that she's going to sell them, but of course she doesn't. And, you know, um, and so anyway, so, so that happens. And then later on, you know, a few chapters on, um, you know, we, we visit the, the, um, Aleph's studio, right? Um, her, her art studio. And, uh, it turns out that she's making, um, snow globes herself. She's making disaster snow globes, um, catas- you know, catastrophic snow globes with uh, depicting scenes of, you know, sort of like Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina or, you know, 9-11, these, these really catastrophic scenes enclosed in, in snow globes, right? So, so that was interesting. Um, Fantastic. And, and yeah. what a great idea for, for an artwork. I mean, I, as you described them in the book, I immediately wished I could see one, uh, uh, that somebody would make one of these. Okay, so I immediately went online as soon as I thought about this. I went online 
online and started ordering the parts, you know, for making snow globes. And, and have I made one? No. Okay. So <laughs> this is, that's where my aspirational, you know, tendencies come up. But so anyway, it was interesting because, um, you know, the, the image of the snow globe became a kind of an, you know, a symbol um, or a, kind of a metaphor for the relationship between Annabelle and Benny. You know, that Benny is kind of trapped inside this glass ball, you know, with all of these kind of sparkly things floating around, and she's stuck on the outside, and she can't, she can't reach him, you know? So it became kind of a, um, you know, a, a metaphor for a lot of what was going on in the book. Um, and then, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll tell you just a little bit more. You know, I did the same thing with other objects as well. Um, so, for example, you know, the Apollo 11 astronauts or fortunes from fortune cookies, right? Um, and then I started doing it with books. Um, a friend of mine, knowing that I was um, setting part of this in a library, told me, you know, you have to read um, Walter Benjamin's essay, Unpacking My Library. And so I did. I, it was something I'd read when I was in college, but I'd forgotten it completely. And I read it again, and it was just filled with these beautiful, you know, lines and quotes about books and about libraries. And so Walter Benjamin then entered the book, right? As, right. Not, not as a character, but as a reference, right? And he's throughout the book. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of him in this book. There's a lot of him in this book, yeah. Yeah. And so then I started reading, you know, tons of Walter Benjamin and um, including his correspondence. And in a letter that, uh, that Adorno, the philosopher Adorno, wrote to Benjamin, Adorno is, talks about Walter Benjamin's snow globe collection. <laughs> and, you know, I was just stunned because I had no idea that Walter Benjamin collected snow globes like Annabelle, you know. Um, and it was just one of those moments of, of, you know, sort of serendipity that really convinced me that, you know, that I was somehow, you know, somehow on the right track. It also convinced me that I was clearly not the one who was writing this book. Um, you know, that, that something else, <laughs> some force larger than me was in control here. And, and again, you know, all I needed to do was just kind of relax and let it happen. Wow, that's beautiful. And one of the one of the stories in the book that I found, or one of the images that that has really stayed with me, and I'm wondering if you can just share the concept with people, is the the teacup, the idea. And I, can you maybe just just quickly tell us that story, or that yeah. Well, it it it's based on a you know on a Zen story. Um, and in this case, uh, indeed, it's the um, the abbess uh, of this of this um, monastery of this temple um, who is uh, telling the story. She um, serves um, a cup of tea to her teacher, right, in a beautiful teacup, and she, as she's you know serving it to him, she drops it, right? She drops the teacup, and she's you know terrified that the teacup has broken and she inspects it um, and, and she's apologizing to her teacher and her teacher just kind of shrugs and says, already broken, right? And, and you know, it turns out that in that case, the teacup was not broken, you know? And, and so she goes to her teacher and she says, you know, well, the teacup's fine, it's not broken. Why did you say it was already broken? And, and he explains that, you know, well, it's the nature of a teacup to break, at some point. Um, and so, you know, in my mind, the teacup is already broken. And because it's already broken, um, I can enjoy it more, 
You know, I don't, I, I know that it, you know, it's, it's in its nature to break. And so while it's not broken, while it can still hold tea, um, I can enjoy it even more. Right. It's just gorgeous. As a concept, you know, this idea that we're already broken um, is so interesting. And you, you bring a certain element of that, the, the, so many of the characters are on the fringes of, of our culture. Uh, they're dealing very much with our world and that they're, they're, addicted to consumption and, and all kinds of different substances and activities and, and all these things. And yet they are looked upon by, by so many as, as broken, as if that is a bad thing, as if we're not all broken. And I, I just wonder if maybe, you know, we could end with, with a little bit of your, your, your this beautiful, the, the Bodhisattva of compassion. And just a little bit, I'm wondering about, is there a connection between a story like this about the act of reading a story and writing a story and uh, living with compassion? Mm-hmm. I think that compassion is, um, or empathy, you know, is um, what we practice when we write and read fiction in particular. Well, I, I think any, any you know, most books. Um, but, you know, the, the beauty of, uh, of fiction is that it allows you both as the writer and the reader um, to inhabit uh, someone else's body and mind and live inside their skin and, um, and you know, understand their subjectivity. And, you know, really it's, it's the most effective way of, of doing that, right? So I think that, you know, that, um, uh, you know, that this is, you know, compassion, empathy is built into the act of, of reading and writing. You know, Azar Nafisi um, in her book, um, uh, Reading Lolita in Tehran, uh, talks about this, right? And, and, um, and I think it's really true. It, and it's, you know, it can be very threatening, of course, to, um, you know, to fascist powers. But, you know, to, you know, she defends it as being, you know, as being, you know, inherently democratic, you know, um, I, I don't know whether I would say that, but but I do think yes, it is certainly you know it, it teaches us, or at least it's a you know it's an exercise in um, compassion and empathy. Um, because without compassion and empathy, it simply won't work. The story will not work. Right? It's only when we can um, you know suspend our disbelief and fully inhabit another's subjectivity um, that the story gains its power and and works for us. And I think it was um, well, uh, Norman Bethune, right? Who I think I'm going to paraphrase badly, but it's the the only battle is to fight the fascist within. Yes. I think was something yes. he said. And and uh, true. you know, when you describe this as being dangerous for fascist powers, I wonder also, do you hope or do you see the role of of yourself as a writer? Do you think you're handing this gift to kind of the freedom fighters within us as readers no, and hoping that's that? Nice. Is, is that how you see it? Or how do you see it yeah, when you I, send a book out? I, I try not to think about, um, you know, I mean, this sounds very solipsistic, but I try not to think about readers all that much. Um, you know, my my reason for writing a book is to spend, you know, a, a <laughs> very long time um, thinking about things that concern me, you know. I don't really have a whole lot of expectations, um, you know, about what the book will do um, when it when it moves out into the world, partly because I have, you know, I have so little control over that, you know, it would be silly to have expectations. Um, you know, my, 
my hope is only that you know that it will uh, create a conversation. You know, it it's kind of starts a dialogue. You know, um, between me and unknown readers, um, and you know, and I hope that dialogue is you know my part of the dialogue is you know I've persisted and I've you know I've I've you know wrestled with the book and and uh, you know thought about these questions um, deeply, um, tried to you know. Um, put them into, you know, into the bodies and minds of characters and, you know, the characters will go out into the world, you know, and, and I hope that, you know, that readers will pick it up and, and um, you know, engage in the dialogue however they would like. Um, but that's not up to me, you know, my, I've done my part and um, it's up to the reader to, you know, to do their part. Well, I want to thank you so much for, for the book and for, for talking with us today and just say that, you know, um, I'm looking at this book very much as kind of being part of a relay. And I think you've passed the baton to me and I'm hoping to pass that baton on to as many other readers as possible. I love um, that. I love that, that idea. That's beautiful. Well, thanks for, oh, and you know what I wanted to, before we ended, mm. I wanted to ask, can, can I get you to read of course. a little taste of the book? Yep. I think the language is gorgeous and let's, let's share a little bit with the audience um, as we say goodbye. Sure. Well, as we're saying goodbye, we'll start at the beginning. <laughs> Perfect. In the beginning. A book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows, drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses, and soon a page, and the book is on its way, finding a voice calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere, and this one starts here. Thank you, Ruth Ozeki. The book is The Book of Form and Emptiness, available at independent booksellers everywhere. That was my conversation with Ruth Ozeki on her acclaimed new novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.